0: On a global stage, all these other nations are looking around thinking, man, we wish we had those opportunities that they have to do this. We can do it all inside our country. It's entirely within our control.
1: Welcome, everyone, to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is number 13 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. And this series presents 100 visionary Australians, that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We are broadcasting today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. It was built in 1899, and it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. Yiridu Ray Johnston Yuanadi, Wiradjuri Yinnawwalidu. Hello, friends. My name is Ray Johnston. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born on Darug land and I was raised on Gundagutta country, where I have responsibilities to community and country. And it is an honour to be working here today on the unceded land of the Gadigal. And I wish to pay my deepest respects to their elders past and present. And I wish to extend that respect to any of my aunties or uncles, brothers and sisters that might be here with us today. Now, as we begin this conversation, it is important to remember and acknowledge and respect that the world's first scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians are the sovereign First Nations peoples of this continent from the world's oldest continuing cultures, despite all attempts to erase them. Mike Cannon Brooks is the co founder and chief executive of Atlassian Software Systems. Thanks for JIRA. A long standing and outspoken advocate for renewable energy, he's been instrumental in large scale energy works in Australia. Mike is also an angel investor and venture capitalist, and a key investor in Sun Cable the world's largest solar energy infrastructure project with a $20 billion plan to deliver Australian solar power to Singapore. Now, he's currently in the headlines by acquiring a significant stake in AGL, Australia's largest electricity generator, with the aim to accelerate its transition to renewable power. So we're so thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome, Mike. Thanks
0: for having me. It is quite unique to be having this conversation in a coal power plant, a former coal power plant, literally (laughs) sitting on top of the rail tracks. (laughs) There's something poignant about that. I hope it's directionally helpful.
1: Absolutely. Now, I can't wait. We do have to start with this. You have just secured, uh, last time I checked, 11.3% stake in AGL. Have I still got that number right? Close enough, yeah. Close enough. Now, a lot of the discussion around taking action on climate is about divesting from fossil fuel industries. Even individuals are choosing their superannuation investments to be in renewables instead, for instance. So what made you take the opposite approach here and kind of try to change things from the inside?
0: Divestment has its place, right, for sure. I don't think divestment is the only um, option. In fact, in some cases, as in AGLs, I think it's uh, harmful for the transition and for harnessing the opportunities ahead. Um, for a lot of other companies, I can understand why divestment makes sense. So it's not exactly a binary one or the other is better or worse. In AGL's case, look, it's pretty simple. We year, year and a half ago looked around for the opportunities. We're big believers in the decarbonisation is the largest economic opportunity facing Australia. And so then you look at well, what's going to change over the next 10 or 20 years and who's going to benefit the most, and you find companies like AGL where you think, okay, with a change in direction, leadership, vision, it is best placed to actually harness that opportunity and therefore becomes a very good investment. Um, and therefore you can do good and make that investment sort of pay off at the same time, which also catalyzes everybody else to hopefully copy that in other places and get a multiplicative effect. That's the
1: And obviously end goal. you believe that that's possible to make that change from the inside.
0: Oh, it's entirely possible. There's no, I mean, engineering wise, finance wise, um, technologically, scientifically, there's nobody can tell you that it is not possible Mm. with any credibility. It's just a a question of, are we going to take the choice to embark on that action? And are we going to be courageous enough to say that's the direction we're going to go in? And then we're going to uh, prove it correct.
1: So it's changing Um, the minds of the people.
0: I think it's changing the, the... certainly the direction of the leadership and the vision, there's a little bit of a sensation of like, yeah, this stuff's all possible in the future, right? Mm. Like one day it'll be possible. And I'm like, no, that's today. Actually, that's today. And, you know, we're talking about a 10 to 15 year time frame, which is entirely reasonable. A hell of a lot of things happen. And if you look back 10 years, people don't quite imagine 10 years ago, you can go and find all these archives from the 2010 era of conversations mm. people are having about how much solar would be or is it possible to do this and that and what batteries arrive and all these things have happened. And they've probably happened faster than most people predicted. I guess if you zoom back, fundamentally, this is a technology disruption. The, the entire um, process we're embarking on, when we talk about decarbonisation, we are just changes changing our sources of motion, heat, light, all the things we've gotten used to in the world from being hydrocarbon, fossil fuel based energy sources that drove that motion of car or lights in the ceiling or heat in your house, whatever it is, to being electrically-based, electron-based sources of motion, heat, light, et cetera, all the machinery we use in the, the broader sense. That is a technological change. We have to change a whole lot of pieces of machinery and technology. We have the machinery and technology we need to make that change now. We have it at an affordable price, and it continues to get cheaper. And it continues to get cheaper more and more rapidly, right? Because it's a technology transition, all of those technologies in the broad renewables and energy and even household appliance spaces are prone to economies of scale rather than supply and demand economies, which is a big difference to the old world of fossil fuel based technologies. So will solar panels be cheaper 10 years from now? I would bet any amount of money that that is the case. <laughs> yeah. Can you prove it with the law of science or physics? No. You can prove it with the last 30 or 40 years that roughly every 18 months, you have a doubling in production and you have 18%, 19% reduction in cost. Mm-hmm. And that has held for 30 years. And I believe it will hold for the next 10 years, 20 years, probably beyond that. So you can either choose to bet on those curves or you can choose to bet against them. I think the company is trying to bet against them and I'm betting on them and that's, that's the fundamental difference.
1: What's the significance of the upcoming vote with the board to demerge AGL into two separate entities? What are they trying to achieve here?
0: It's a long and complicated answer. <laughs> uh, the, the fundamental, <laughs> significance, the fundamental <laughs> significance is, again, you talked about divestment. Do you endeavor to make the transition yourself or do you make it someone else's problem? We're not gonna solve climate change. We're not going to change our economy. We're not going to harness opportunities to decarbonization by making it someone else's problem. Uh, And we spent a long time doing that. And it's a very easy thing to do. The fundamental principle behind the demerger is to separate all the fossil fuel assets into a different company, um, which will be a smaller, weaker entity that will manage itself. I believe that is very damaging for shareholders. And it will entrench those assets for a long time, and ultimately, shareholders will lose a significant amount of value. It'll be very bad for the employees in terms of how that transition is managed proactively and sensibly rather than wrenchingly, and probably bad for the taxpayers, because at the end of the day, if those things go south in a smaller company that can't afford to handle its liabilities and everything else, it's a very bad outcome. What people don't understand, and this is an ironic place that we're sitting right now, (laughs) most of these large-scale coal plants are very borderline in profitability. They're incredibly unreliable And so this is where you can harness the opportunity to proactively transition them, or you can pretend like they're going to be running for 20 years. There's no economic model outside of the companies I can find that shows these things are running in 20 years, both reliability-wise, they break down more and more frequently because they were invented, they were sort of built before we had computers. They are more and more unreliable, as we see with continual large-scale breakdowns. Breakdowns last longer. They're very expensive to fix. They cannot be insured anymore. Um, So that trend is going to continue. And if that trend continues, they then become less and less profitable. So the problem with the coal plant is you can't turn it on and off very easily. As our grid, our source of energy in general, gets smarter and faster, we have many more rapid response uh, technologies to inject energy, to manage energy with batteries or things that turn on and off uh, frequently. And. That is very hard for those assets that were designed to run continually. Mm. What that means is if the utilization falls from 80% to 60%, you go from making $100 million a year to losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year very, very quickly. And to do that in a smaller company, there's no ability then to to recover from that. And so you want to lean into that and manage that rather than pretend
1: it's going to be running in 20 plus years time. It's not (laughs) going to be doing that. Let's go back in time a little. Of the millions of tweets that people make every day, very few of them actually end up doing something that changes the world even just a little. But you tweeted to Elon Musk in 2017. Can you tell me the story of that tweet?
0: Look, I had it uh, my third kid at the time, I guess, was very young and I was up. It was late at night. I remember it was like, I don't know, one a.m. in the morning or something. Um, you know, taking care of, of Tiger and I think it was Lyndon Rives, so the head of who was the founder of Solar City, uh, and and when Tesla bought Solar City in terms of the batteries and, and things, it became one Tesla Energy effectively. Mm. Um, South Australia had just had a, a series of uh, blackouts. Um, they were being blamed on renewables because politically South Australia has lent very heavily into renewables, um, which has been a very good thing. Again, it has the cheapest price of energy in the NEM because it has the most renewables right now today. So it's paid off for them in South Australia very well. They were being blamed on the renewables, which turned out to be not true. Uh, it, it was largely due to interconnectors failing in the, in the grid between Victoria and South Australia. But fundamentally, Lyndon was there launching the Powerwall, so the household battery mm-hmm. for your home. And someone asked him, could batteries solve the South Australian blackout problem? And he said, sure, of course they could. Like I honestly can't remember. It was just a moment of frustration <laughs> or whatever else. Anyway, I just tweeted to Elon, like, was he serious? Did he think that this was the case? Like, his, One of his lieutenants is saying that this is possible to save... South Australia's problems and prevent the blackouts, and he didn't really think anything of it. I think I went to bed and then came back and <laughs> said he would, and we went back and forth negotiating, and then sort of all hell broke loose. Suddenly Malcolm Turnbull was on the phone, and it was like it went a bit nuts for a couple of weeks there. But you know, credit to him, he hit the bid on the pricing really aggressively. He you know said he'd do it in a hundred days, or it'd be free, and delivered on that. And sure enough, that the, the South Australian battery, which is now called the Hornsdale Power Reserve, was a lighthouse project for the Australian energy landscape because mm. it was the first large scale battery. When it was built, it was three times larger than any battery that humankind had built. So very, very large scale piece of equipment. And he took a big risk on that. And the most important part is economically, it turned out to be a very profitable project. So all the people that panned it, it effectively removed a whole lot of um, profits from uh, the gas generators. Uh, Most of its profits are made in frequency control, so again, one of the things people think is batteries only about storage. Generally when the frequency starts diving, then we fire up gas generators, they have about a five minute period to turn on and then they inject power and and fix the frequency and you can get paid for the services of fixing frequency. The battery responds in like milliseconds. So instead of sort of going like this, the frequency is basically, the movements now are so small in South Australian grid that you don't notice it. So it has saved the grid multiple times. And it has saved blackouts in various places. It saved blackouts in Queensland. And it's proven to be a profitable project, right, for the owners of it making money. That's the most important thing because not only is it doing a good thing for the grid, it's helping more renewables exist in the grid. It's stabilizing the grid for everybody. So everybody's is, you know, more stable, lower prices in general. When one was done, suddenly everyone's like, oh, it's possible. And then you have all the capital in the world flooding in to make more and more and more batteries. And now we have gigawatt batteries. And, you know, in Sun Cable, we're looking at 20 odd gigawatt hours of storage, mm. 150 times the size of what Hornsdale started as, uh, and that'll be, you know, 10 years later. But still, that shows the pace of that technological change and price coming down and everything else.
1: When that tweet went out, you went to bed, you woke up in the morning, you were suddenly hounded by press to be put forward as one of Australia's foremost experts on climate change and to be able to speak on this topic. What did you do to make sure that you were getting the information right and putting the right messages out there?
0: I certainly worked really hard for, there was a crazy odd week or two there. Um, yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, foremost experts, is, that's, that's not true. Um, <laughs> I knew the surface level detail at the time, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, would, I would be very honest. I'd seen, you know, Inconvenient Truth a decade ago and kind of knew the concept, but had no amount of detail at the time. As a result of that, I like had to dive really, really deep, really fast. and. Uh developed a really good network of advisors and other people around me and just got more and more motivated to understanding what it was, you know, how the fundamental building blocks of what it would take to change this, so mm. electrifying everything, switching our source of generation to renewable sources, agriculture, all the bits and pieces that have come after that have been sort of a fundamental frustration of mine that we have most of these technologies. I think that was the thing the battery proved to me.
1: Yeah.
0: We didn't invent any technology for that. It was built, deployed, and profitable within 18 months with existing technologies. It required a whole lot of popular movement. It required political will. It required bravery and courage on behalf of Elon and Tesla to say that it was possible, and then a bunch of really smart South Australians to actually build the thing and, and put it together. But it was done, and it worked, and we didn't invent anything. Mm. And so then you think, oh, well, I've sort of been living in this world where I thought this technology all need to be invented. We need to invent some things to solve the problem in the future. And you realize, no, what we need to do is just large-scale deployment of technologies we have today, will solve 90% of today's problem over the next decade. And then we can deal with the, the harder 10% that's at the end, but actually solving the bulk of the problem is with technologies we already have, which yeah. was, became very frustrating to <laughs> me and then it's become a source <laughs> of kind of a crusade to explain and to try to catalyse some part of that, mm. that frustration into action.
1: Solving Australia's energy crisis is not your day job though. No. (laughs) And you founded the software giant Atlassian with Scott Farquhar in in 2002 as fresh uni grads and since then it has grown into one of the most influential tech companies with over a billion dollars in annual revenue. As CEO, problem solving would figure into your everyday work, I'd, I'd hazard a guess there. Is there a relationship between what you do at Atlassian and how you approach climate change? You know, can that entrepreneurial mindset contribute to solving the climate crisis?
0: I think there's a huge relationship. I think, look, look, my day jobs, uh, my degrees, half computer science technology and half economics and finance. Um, there's a fair amount of technology disruption and change in our world. Again, when we started with Atlassian, the internet was sort of just starting off, we made the choice not to distribute software on CDs and to put it up for people to download on the web, which was this revolutionary thing, right? <laughs> and then we've sort of moved through the mobile era and moved you know, through the SaaS era, everything's in the cloud now. So all of these changes, these are large scale technology changes that we've had to adapt to mm-hmm. by building new technology, migrating technologies, migrating customers, managing the movement, financing the whole thing and working out how we're gonna you know, continue to make enough money to build tomorrow, which is what we always sort of talk about. So, solving this problem is going to take technology, it's going to take finance, uh, it's going to take a good dash of kind of courage and proactivity. Like, we can go do this, let's, let's attempt to do something that hasn't been done before, and then others will, will follow. Finance, economics, technology, science is all actually what I do as a day job. Yeah. So, it's not that far away. It's just um, with the climate change stuff, we tend to be playing with physical objects and electrons, <laughs> which is uh, uh, a little different, but the the forces of technology change are no different. And I think that's why so many people in the technology industry are very frustrated by this problem, because we are very used to the pace of change. We are very used to the pace of scale of technology curves. So I do think there's a lot of parallels yeah. between what I do.
1: And, of course, you take your concerns about climate into your own business. You mm-hmm. do plan sure. to make Atlassian carbon neutral by 2040. Why not sooner?
0: A few reasons. So we've, well, I mean, we were run entirely on renewable energy and we achieved that five years early. I think we reduced our emissions like 87% in the last couple of years. Um, So we're making huge strides towards that. We've taken the position that we are going to have firstly a science-based target. So the SBTI is Science-Based Targets Initiative, is uh, the strictest initiative. So it took us a year and a half to write a plan that they would accept. Not that they were being objectionable, like... The plan has to be thorough enough for them to come back and say, right, they're actually science-based. It's very easy to commit to net zero and then say, oh, yeah, we're going to do that, you know, um, do some very surface level maths. The plan has to say, what are you going to do in what periods of time? How are they going to do it? How have you measured these emissions? Like, How are you thinking about employees and commuting and everything else? Our plan also includes all scope three emissions. So all the emissions from our customers using our products, our suppliers, transportation, um, commuting to the office, everything. And fundamentally, our longest pole is our suppliers. So we'll be a long way towards our net zero goal because of all our internal consumption that we can control. Um, we're also trying very hard not to just credit our way out of it. Yeah. You know, you can get to net zero by just shelling out money and buying credits and kind of claim the accounting. Credits have a variety of spectrum of high quality to pretty sketchy. <laughs> it's again, it's a way of avoiding solving a problem often, right? They're very necessary for, again, that last five to 10% of the problem. And fundamentally, our biggest challenge uh, is um, our cloud provider, which is Amazon AWS. So they have a date of 2040 at the moment for their services to be entirely net zero. So all their data centers, all their sources of energy and creation at Amazon. It's very hard for us to get rid of that without just crediting our way out of it. So instead, we are choosing engagement. So what was Andy Jassy, (laughs) and now um, the new CEO, Every meeting I have with ADB, with a very large customer there, starts with how are you going on your plan to get to 2040 and you're going to pull it forward, right? So I really hope they bring it forward and that'll that'll be the fundamental thing that brings our our date forward.
1: There is that old saying that there's no such thing as an ethical billionaire, but it does seem like you are doing your best. (laughs) You made a pledge to give $1.5 billion by 2030. How do you decide which ventures or organisations to invest in?
0: So just to be clear, we made a pledge to uh, invest and donate $1.5 billion Mm by 2030. The goal of that pledge is really important for a few reasons. One, it's a billion dollars in investments and half a billion dollars in uh, philanthropy. Coincidentally, not coincidentally, it's one and a half, one and a half degrees 2030. That's what we need to hit. Basically, That's, that's the most important thing. And the most important part about it is to deploy it by 2030. There's a lot of climate change groups that say, oh, I'm going to do this over the next 30 years. The next eight years is the really critical period of time because fundamentally emissions is an area under the curve. We can't get to 2049 and be like, oh, we're going to solve it now. The momentum of it is going to run away from us if we don't do significant things in the next eight years. My wife and I are trying to commit to actually doing it in the next eight years and focusing on that particular goal. Secondly, this is going to take not just philanthropy, but investment as well. So we're trying to be very clear and create a, a bit of a model. And we've had a handful of people copy us around the world and please feel free anyone else copy it. <laughs> you know, it can be hundred grand and 50 grand, can be a million dollars, nothing, it can be any amount of money. But like the point is it's gonna take investments to move the world forward and choice of investments, proactive transition investments, new technologies, scale technologies so financing everything else to move the deployment of technologies forward. And it's also gonna, also gonna take philanthropy to show leadership, storytelling, standard setting, politics. There's a whole bunch of things that need to be changed on the philanthropic side. I don't believe we can solve this problem with just one or just the other. So I think the combination is actually what's really, really important. And so that's what we tried to put into a a package. I think we'll probably far exceed it, (laughs) but that's our pledge at the moment.
1: Tell me about one of the things you've invested in or plan to invest in that you're really excited by. Um,
0: There's too many. There's high productivity things. And then there's people who are really out there in their thinking. High productivity things, I mean, Bright is a great example. Um, So this is a, a lady called Catherine, who is fantastic, ex Macquarie, I think, who got climate infected and decided she wanted to do something and realized that finance is actually a huge piece of this problem. So if you look at almost any renewable technology, it's all capex, no opex. So what that means is if you put panels on your house, cost you 10 grand, you pay the 10 grand cash up front. And then there's zero fuel costs. So they'll sit there for 20 years and and generate energy for 20 odd year period. And once you put them on the roof, you just wait for it to rain to kind of clean them and that's it. There's no maintenance, there's no fuel, there's no buying of of input costs. Almost all renewable technologies work largely that way. The the money is all in the capex. So what you need to do is finance them. If you think about a a mortgage, a house is the same thing. It's capex buying the house is expensive and then running it much cheaper over a long period of time. So we invented mortgages. And so financing is a huge part of the deployment of renewable technologies. And what Bright does is come up with some very uh, uh, low cost and aggressive ways of financing home solar and now financing all sorts of home energy efficiency improvements. Um, We know that electrifying uh, a standard dwelling in Australia will save about $4,000 a year, which is a huge amount of money. And so, if you think, okay, well, if I electrify everything—so my stovetop, my water heater, my car, you know, my um, my panels on the roof, batteries—all this sorts of stuff—electrifying all the sources of energy in my house will save me four thousand dollars a year. I think, well, will someone give me the money to pay for all that technology? It costs about hundred grand per house, and then I'll take some of that four grand a year and give it back to the, as the loan interest, effectively. And that's that's what Bright does with panels and the rate of acceleration of home solar deployment has been amazing because of financing technologies. And it's now a highly competitive space. So the cost of financing is going down, thus the rate of deployments going up. So those are the things that are actually making a huge difference in terms of the rollout of technologies. And it's a highly competitive business. And it's taking Australian business brains and financial brains and everything to say, well, how can we solve this problem in a way that's not like, you know, playing with the actual molecules of a panel and trying to make better panels. Um, So, you know, what they're doing is really exciting. On the crazy side, I always love hanging out with the Goterra folk. So again, they're building a, uh, it's a maggot robot. A what now? A maggot robot.
1: <laughs> I thought I heard you right. <laughs>
0: so food waste is a, a bad problem. It often goes into landfill, it decays, it creates a lot of uh, bad gases. And so they've invented a robot with a lot of artificial intelligence. It's kind of a cyborg. Um, a lot of smarts and robotics and AI combined with these black soldier flies that you effectively think of a shipping container that you put by a facility, so you get rid of transportation of waste. You shovel food waste in to the one end of the shipping containers, a bit oversimplified. (laughs) The the fly larvae eat and eat and eat and eat. They eat the food waste and consume it to create, uh, think of the body of the fly, which is an incredibly dense source of protein that you can then use for all sorts of other things. So you're sort of turning food waste into usable protein for human consumption, for animal consumption, for anything you need and saving huge amounts of transportation emissions, saving cost for the person who's donating it, creating a profitable economic business out of this waste uh, with an out product that's useful and obviously getting rid of all the the gases and stuff that come from the decomposition of that waste and landfill and everything else.
1: Now, one of the projects that you have been involved with is the Sun Cable project. Mm -hmm. I I would love for you to just give me a quick overview of, of what the project is and what its goal is.
0: Sun Cable is a company that uh, is building uh, a platform uh, with a deep belief that uh, high voltage DC cables are the most efficient way to transport energy over long distances. That then comes to a series of projects, so a series of cables, mm-hmm. the first cable of which is the uh, Australian ASEAN Power Link, uh, AAPL, which is a cable that's going to go from the Northern Territory uh, up to Darwin. Um, and then uh, a couple thousand kilometres across the ocean floor to Singapore to provide power to Singapore. So it's a very, very large scale infrastructure project that is uh, incredibly efficient and is a new export industry for Australia. So, from an Australian point of view, it's kind of the equivalent of a giant extension cord, right, that you buy <laughs> from Bunnings. It's just a very, 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 very fat one very, very long distance, but we're taking Australian sunshine, storing it in a battery for a couple of hours, and then sending it out to Darwin and then uh, uh, under the ocean. Oceans are good, they cool the cable, Um, losses are very low. And um, it will mean 20% change of Singapore's power will come from renewable Australian sunshine. Singapore is very expensive power, being a wealthy but island nation. Currently it's all imported LNG that's burned, it's a very expensive energy source. So it's a cheaper energy source for Singapore, as well as a renewable energy source, as well as an export industry for Australia. So if you think about Australia, we have vast amount of landmass. We're one of the most irradiated countries in the world. You know, we call it up windswept plains and sun drenched land and all this sort of thing. Um, they didn't realize when they wrote those that they were pretty, pretty forward thinking. <laughs> we just want to export that sunshine to other people. And it's a, you know, sub 20% losses, so super efficient way of getting power to Asia. We have no shortage of land, and so this is the first cable that we hope, much like the battery, is a lighthouse project. Sun Cable is itself planning to build a whole series of other cables um, and creating a whole new industry and export uh, uh, potential for Australia, which would dwarf you know, our, our current fossil fuel exports if we're exporting energy in, in the right ways. Again, we have a lot of land, we have a lot of sun, a lot of wind, <laughs> and we have 3 billion consumers to the north that don't have that luxury of space and everything else that we have. So. You know, you can see a world where there'd be tens or hundreds of cables going north from Australia to um, Indonesia, 270 million people, oh, wow. um, obviously to Singapore and up into Southeast Asia, and then, and then onwards to other countries, hopefully down to New Zealand, so we can harness some of their resources and balance. Um, I've long believed in the, the, the long-term worldview, this is more in the tens of years. If you think about the world, it's always sunny on half the world. So if you could build a cable that was 50% of the world length economically, then you would need no batteries at all because it would always be sunny on the other side of the planet. And you would always be able to send that. That's, I think the world's grids will continue to connect intercontinentally. And this is just the first step of what you will see many, many times over. Um, And it's again, modular technology, it's super scalable, and it's a viable economic project, I believe.
1: To begin with, how big would the solar farm be on the Australian side?
0: I think it's about 30 gigawatts. Yeah. So it's about 15% of Australia's power generation. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's far more than we need to replace all of AGL's power stations, put it that way, oh. that we're already building. So it's, it, it, again, building a large solar farm, there's some engineering technicalities to it. So the engineers will be like, oh, this is really hard. It is kind of hard, but it's kind of very modular, right? It's mm. just how quickly can you roll out? I mean, we're in the, the Barclay near Tennant Creek. Like, It's not the most hospitable environment no. for building large-scale pieces of infrastructure, so you've got to be very clever about how you build it. But fundamentally, today it would be the world's largest solar farm. I suspect by 2028, it's, it's probably not, right? Um, if you look at what's happening in the Middle East, in parts of India, um, in, in North Africa, there's plenty of very, very large solar farms going on. Um, there are other people doing similar projects. There's a project from Morocco that's uh, very similar in concept uh, uh, in terms of balance. It's a solar farm in Morocco that's going up to England via cable, so out through the Atlantic and up. There's a large network of cables going from India to the Middle East because they have the time zone advantage. It's an incredibly viable method of huge renewable generation and distribution.
1: So we all can't build massive solar farms, but we could put solar on our own homes. Mm -hmm. What kind of impact would that have? Do you have solar on your home?
0: I have a bit of a wacky system at home. I live on a farm, so we actually don't have it on the roof. We have it out in the field. Yeah, nice. Um, and a whole series of batteries, and we trade power <laughs> on a regular daily basis. Yeah. Um, I would not recommend this to anybody else unless you're a true energy nerd. <laughs> so we buy effectively wholesale power and balance our equation by selling and buying. You know, it's a mini trading equation with amateur written things. Um, but otherwise, it's very simple. Look, you put panels on your roof. Uh, you put a battery in your garage, you work out when your appliances are going to go there. We are slowly going down the more home automation route to um, you know, change our chargers, for example, for the uh, electric vehicles to be controlled centrally. So when the price of power is cheap, it will turn on the charger and fill your car. If the price of power spikes, turns off the charger, stops filling your car. So you can yeah. you know, do a lot of demand management in your home as the home gets smarter, which I think every year over the next 10 years is going to get better and better, um, less hand rolled stuff and more, you know, there are more boxes coming out that do a lot of this equipment for you. Um, Again, you put on, uh, what'll end up happening is you'll plug in your car at night when you get home and you'll say, I need it to be full by 7 a.m. in the morning. And the system will work out based on the price of power, based on how much is in your house battery, how much you're gonna need for your air conditioning overnight or whatever, when it should pull from the grid, what's the most economic opportunity for you? What's the cheapest way Mm -hmm. to fill your car? And that in itself is helping balance the grid. So we're sort of living a little bit in the future there. That will be every household in Australia in five to 10 years' time.
1: You've spoken a little bit here today about the unique opportunity that we actually have in Australia. Why is it, in your view, that Australia is uniquely placed for renewables? Is it just that sunshine and vast land? Is there something more to it?
0: Look, there's a lot of ingredients that Australia has in our favor. there are some ingredients we have that go against us as well. Going against us is probably easiest to start. Climate change will affect Australia, as we're already seeing. Fires, floods, more frequent, you know, the number of times in the recent floods, we said this is a one in 100 years, and you're like, well, the last one was like two years ago, and the one before that was like three years before that. Like, you know, they're gonna get more frequent. Storms, floods, fires, all the sort of scary Al Gore stuff is gonna happen. Where Australia is in the the, um, global weather systems, And the uh, ecology we have, our position in the globe, part of what makes us have an opportunity from renewables is exactly what also makes us vulnerable to climate change, more than a lot of other nations. Mm. I think that's not often known. Um, And there's the sort of emotional examples, the the barrier reef disappearing and tourism and all that. that is totally true. There's the actual physical cost examples for us of the floods bills and the fire bills and all the things that we're going to have to pay and the insurance prices that therefore go up and all of this sort of stuff. So we are, as a nation, quite uniquely vulnerable because of our connection to the land, to climate change. But at the same time, because of our uh, few things, our geography. So we happen to be in a very, very sunny part of the world. We have a lot of open space and a lot of land. We have. Uh, a very good wind resource, because of the Roaring Forties and the Indian Ocean, the wind sort of goes across and slams into Australia in lots of different places. Yep. Um, As a very stable source of, of wind. So the physical resources are quite good. Secondly, I've long been, if, like most of our populations on the Eastern seaboard, it's good. One of the things you really want to have a, more and more renewables in your grid is you want to not fight time. So again, it's sunny in Perth when it's peak power usage in Sydney. Yeah. So the more we can connect west and east, That actually helps us quite a lot. That's why more and more cables are going to help. We also have a very interesting uh, energy market. So the fact that the NEM operates democratically, relatively, the fact that it operates with a relatively real-time power pricing supply-demand equation Mm -hmm. is, when they put it together, it's very future thinking. So the grid of the future is going to need to be highly adaptive to responses in price. Right? If the price of power in the next five minutes goes from you know, $10 a megawatt hour to $1,000 a megawatt hour, you want your air conditioner to turn off for a few minutes and turn on. And so this helps balance the grid because what happens is it reduces demand then price comes down. Everything is gonna get a lot smarter. For countries that have very fixed grids with fixed pricing, fixed sales into their grid, it's much harder. We actually have a very, we're very lucky in the NEM that we have Quite a dynamic environment, which creates some challenges. Again, if you're running the wrong thing, it's $1,000 an hour problem. Um, but we have, a, we have a huge amount of opportunity to profit from this. We have a lot of financial resources. So we talk about physical resources a lot, sun, wind, etc. Uh, again, we've talked about the 3 billion consumers we have to the north, export directly over wire, hydrogen, higher value manufactured goods. You know, instead of shipping iron ore, why don't we ship them steel? Right. Major cost of steel is energy. Well, if we have very cheap energy, we can ship steel, and that is a high value manufactured good. We're effectively exporting energy.
1: Can even make green steel.
0: Green, well, green steel is, is exporting energy from Australia. I would argue yeah. that's exactly what it is doing. We also have a huge amount of financial resources. So in the fifth largest capital market in the world, superannuation savings, et cetera. As we talked about, the decarbonisation transition is going to take a financing equation in a huge way. Having a huge capital market locally helps us a huge amount. Um, and then lastly, we have talent. Right? We have not just the financial talent folk up and down Macquarie Street. We have engineering talent, we have technological talent, we have mm-hmm. a huge technology industry now. All the parts uh, of the talent that we need manufacturing, large scale industrial, uh, very big sort of tradey culture. That is all the talent that is necessary to make this transition and we have it in the country. You know what I mean? And we can put all the pieces together to actually handle that. So not only do we have the opportunity, we have the ability to execute on the opportunity. and be a huge exporter, right, and be a, a, you know, as they call it, a renewable energy superpower. Uh, And I honestly think that's exactly where we should end up.
1: Talk to me a bit about decarbonising the Australian economy. What does that mean?
0: So fundamentally, it means, uh, simply put, removing fossil fuels. You can dance around any which way you want, (laughs) getting rid of fossil fuels. Um, Those are hydrocarbon based sources of energy, light, motion, movement, uh, heat, we are trying to electrify all of those things. Fundamental big building blocks of how do you decarbonize the economy? You need to electrify everything. So your car, your house, uh, manufacturing, industry. So once you electrify everything, then you just got to change your sources of electricity to be renewable. And that can happen in parallel, right? As our grid is about, as we speak today, it's about 32% renewable over the last 12 months. Um, that's up significantly already. So you know our grid is going to continue to go up 40, 50, 60%. My electric vehicle, if I charge it off the grid, not off my rooftop, but off the grid, then you know it's today 30% of that is renewable. Next year, it'll be 40%. Next year, it'll be 50%. So my car is getting greener mm. just by the grid improving. So if we electrify everything and we improve the grid, those are the two fundamentally big blocks uh, that gets rid of about 80% plus of the problem. And then you get down to some agriculture and land use type things, which are also important. And you've basically solved the problem for Australia at that point.
1: Tell me about how decarbonisation will help create jobs.
0: So this is a huge transition, right? So if you look at it, um, the household example is the easiest for people to understand, but it can be applied from, think of a household, to a community, to a industrial manufacturing, the same thing largely applies up and down. If I'm gonna decarbonise my household, I'm gonna take all of the gas appliances and switch them to electric, my stovetop, my water heater, my—if uh, I have gas heating, for example, for the house—switch to a heat pump or a reverse cycle air conditioner. Um, each of those is going to take someone coming out and helping me make that some some sort of a tradey job: electricians, plumbers, etc. Changing my water heater or changing my heating system or changing my stovetop. Secondly, I probably want to make my house more efficient. One of the things you notice when people put solar panels on their roof and why solar panels are such an instrumental device in people understanding their energy consumption is they start caring about how much energy they produce. And as soon as they do that, they go like, wow, where did <laughs> I spend all this energy? And then like, man, I should close the door or I should fix my insulation or I should fix the draft or whatever.
1: Well, get rid we of have... the old fridge on, on the back veranda with all the beer in it in the sun. That's <laughs> right.
0: We have horrible or turn the pool heater off in winter because <laughs> ain't no one going to anyway kind yeah. of thing. We have pretty terrible building standards in Australia, mm-hmm. because we've been pretty lucky in climate. It's not so important. But having building standards and other things for new buildings, there's a lot of standard stuff that needs to be done in the household level. But obviously, the tradie jobs, electricians and plumbers in that case, for actually coming out and fixing, changing that source of equipment. You have a lot of finance jobs, as I've said, to uh, do the financing of that and balancing credit risk and all the things that financial companies need to do. And that's before you get to panels, which you would then put on your roof, because you'd be like, ah, oh, you know what? If I put my own panel on. I'm making money in about year seven in Australia. If I finance it entirely, I'm making money in year nine on a 20-year asset. It's an incredibly good deal for any homeowner, which is why we have more Australians sleeping under a solar panel than any country on earth per capita. Um, We have a lot of sun and it's very cheap to do here. It's, It's a very economic prospect. So putting panels on roof, again, there's more jobs to go out and actually install them and create them. And then there's all the downstream industries of uh, panel distribution, panel creation, final assembly—all those things that can be done more and more in Australia as the model picks up. Similar with batteries. Then you go to electric vehicles, which obviously, um, you know, vehicle transition, vehicle sales. So if you look at the, the downstream effects of that, it's roughly estimated as 1.7 million jobs. So it's definitely north of a million. Various studies: 1.2, 1.5, 1.7, 1.9. Different studies have come out, but it's north of a million jobs created for the next probably 20 years plus. So actually, I think we'll have the problem of, we don't have enough people to fulfill all of these jobs, <laughs> not the other way around. And that's before you get to any of the manufacturing of those, could we make batteries here? Could we make you know, a final assembly of electric vehicles? Electric vehicles are very simple to create compared mm. to traditional combustion vehicles, not simple, but easy to manufacture. Um, and if you start talking about manufacturing and industrial, electric buses and communities, the the switching of all of those resources, if we can solve the, the capex, opex equation, so finance it all at a community governmental level down to a household level, and then start on that decarbonisation transition, that creates a huge amount of jobs in that transition for many, many years, decades.
1: Lots of jobs. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no shortage. It's, it's, a, it's a positive. This is where we, we talk about the decarbonisation opportunity, right? In a decarbonised world, Australia is a winner. Like, on a global stage, all these other nations are looking around thinking, man, we wish we had those opportunities that they have to do this. We can do it all inside our country. We don't have to rely on many other people in order to do this. It's entirely within our control. And if if we decarbonize the entire economy of Australia, our balance of trade would be better. Household living costs would be better. And we would have a more vibrant economy exporting to billions of people, you know, energy or or higher value manufactured goods, it, it will be the largest export industry in the country um, by certainly two decades from now.
1: What kind of time frame do you think is reasonable for decarbonising the economy completely?
0: Net zero by 2050, if you're doing it properly, is a really important milestone. Mm.
1: Um,
0: and when I say doing it properly, it's not just pledging it. You've got to actually have a plan and you've got to break the back of it in the next eight years. That's that's a real challenge, right? Is You've got mm. to It's sort of a long-tail problem that the first 50% is relatively easily and entirely doable today's technologies. If you zoom forward sort of eight years, you get to about the 80, 90% possibility curve economically, price-wise, technology-wise, et cetera. Then you've got kind of the last 20 years to get rid of that last 10%. From an emissions perspective, you have to do it in that order. It doesn't actually get any easier to start in 2040. In fact, it gets harder. The price of starting in 2040 is ludicrously higher than today. So you're fighting against finance in the wrong direction to wait. But it's important that we don't think of it as a straight line between now and 2050. We have to knock the bulk of the problem off, which we can do this decade, and then focus on the harder to work out um, sectors, uh, areas of the economy in in that last 20 years. But that should be the final sort of 10% of the problem. And again, some part of that will be solved with you know, forestry and agriculture and seaweed and all sorts of other things that we're managing the carbon cycle in a different way when we get to those, those parts of the problem.
1: Do you believe it will actually happen?
0: Yes. It has to.
1: No question? It has to. No.
0: It, ha- it has to. It's just a question of um, how quickly we choose to do it at cheap cost today, or do we do it at expensive cost tomorrow or next decade, whatever, it will get more and more expensive for us to do as a nation. And secondly, we will lose our opportunity. Someone else will service those customers. Someone else will get that economy of of learning and speed faster than we will. I'm a big believer we should in Australia have the cheapest power in the world. If you have the cheap power, the price of electricity is one of the fundamental input costs to our entire global economy. Whether you're talking about green steel like earlier, whether you're talking about how much it costs me to run my house, therefore, I can buy other goods or I can (laughs) consume other things or whatever. or or the cost of, you know, my lifestyle, running my car, um, data centers move to where cheap power is like there's a lot of things. If you have cheap power, industry, manufacturing, etc, moves towards you, not away from you, we should have the cheapest power in the world. If we don't get there before everybody else, those industries, those jobs, those economic opportunities will go to the places that have that cheap power. And we will be really hard for us to get it back. So this is where we have this opportunity in Australia, if we lean into it in the next decade, to not only decarbonise and do good things from our planetary emissions and you know, climate sense, but also from an economic sense, that is the opportunity that we're seizing ahead of other nations that will then keep us ahead for hopefully decades afterwards.
1: Mike Cannon-Brooks, it's been fantastic to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. To follow this program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition, or join us for a live recording. You can go to 100climateconversations.com to find out more. This is a significant new project for the museum, and records of the conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time.